0: By Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion you got the game the on? Side, yep. on the move down to the 24 yard line of St. Francis who's winning. Yeah, he he won't say the, the zone zone score laid up and waited for the pass short drop Come out of the on gun. who's winning Rifles towards the right corner. Complete to Vander Cooey who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. This is the say the damn score podcast with your host Logan Anderson welcome everybody to the Say the Damn Score podcast as we have another great guest lined up for you today. It will be our third consecutive episode with a Big Ten broadcaster as we are joined right now by Gary Dolphin. He is the football and men's basketball voice of the Iowa Hawkeyes. And
1: Gary, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Logan. Enjoying uh, the off season. They seem to uh, get shorter every year, but uh, there's plenty to do in Iowa with Hawkeye fans and the coaches traveling around the state, which uh, we're in the heart of the uh, spring banquet tour right now with coach Ference, coach McCaffrey, coach brands and others. And uh, it's always a fun time to get out and shake hands and press the flesh a little bit. It's almost like you're running for political office, but that's not the case, thankfully. Uh, but no, everything's going good. Uh, spring though, and summer will fly by and we'll have a new football season here before you know it.
0: All right. So, It took us a little while to connect and make the timing work for this. And as we texted back and forth setting things up, you mentioned that you were going on a Civil War trip in Virginia. And I found that really interesting just because the trend that I've noticed with several uh, sportscasters as I've done this podcast is that a lot of them are very interested in history. What are a couple highlights of that trip and what is it about you know, history in the past that somehow seems to attract sportscasters?
1: Sure. I, uh, I've always been a, a military, uh, I've always been a history buff, number one, but a military history buff in particular. I tell people that uh, when I came out of college, came out of school, had I not had uh, been bitten by the uh, sportscasting or play-by-play bug, I would have loved to have been a, a, a history teacher or an English teacher in school. Um, You know, I'm a firm believer in you have to know your roots. You have to know where you came from. And uh, I can't remember when I exactly got the bug uh, for the Civil War in particular. I love military history, whether it be the Revolutionary War or uh, Vietnam or what's going on in the Middle East right now. But uh, for some reason... Uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, General Robert E. Lee caught my attention, not, not so much for who they were, but, but what they fought for. Uh, the North lined up to, uh, uh, among other things, abolish slavery. Uh, the South uh, wanted to keep slavery uh, just as it was. And it goes way back beyond the Civil War. Uh, it goes back to the revolutionary times when slaves were first imported from Africa. And and it made me wonder what this country would be like today, had Robert E. Lee succeeded at Gettysburg, had had the Confederacy won at Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, they would have had a free reign, a free ride into Washington D.C., whereby President Lincoln would have. Uh, been forced to negotiate some type of a truce, some type of a peace agreement. And, you know, Logan, we could very well have uh, two two United States of America today. We could have the North United States of America and the South United States of America. And, and I think that gets lost with people. Now, I'm happy to say, I think for, for many years recently, uh, our, our schools were atrocious in, uh, in teaching uh, the basics of not only history and English, but but um, uh, geography—you're um, probably too young to remember. I can remember the day when we had to memorize the 50 state capitals and be able to recite them by state uh, alphabetically, by state, in school. And uh, I so cherish those moments now because uh, another passion of mine is, whenever I am traveling, I, I, I like to hit, uh, particularly if I'm close to a state capital. I'm a big architecture fan. And uh, love traveling to inside state capitals and the rotundas and looking at how the state government is structured and what went into the uh, thought of a different design for the building, whether it's Des Moines or Madison or Bismarck, North Dakota. Last Sunday, we had the pleasure of uh, touring the uh, Virginia state capitol, which goes back to the 1760s. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and so again, that too ties into history. Uh, so that's that's with a background uh, of why I'm uh, impassioned about uh, uh, U.S. history, but world history in general. Uh, as for highlights, uh, really the only theater that I had not been to where the Civil War was concerned was the last week of the war when uh, the North converged on Richmond, uh, the uh, Confederacy capital, Richmond, Virginia, and it started at Petersburg, the Battle of Petersburg, and kind of retraced the final week of the war from uh, Richmond to Petersburg to uh, to Appomattox Courthouse where they signed the surrender in April of 1865. And, uh, beyond that, we spent a day in Jamestown, which was the original colony of, of the United States, or what would become the United States back in the late 1600s. Uh, spent a day in Colonial Williamsburg and and, and so, uh, I've been doing this for about 20 years, uh, where I've had the, uh, this is really my great escape from, uh, athletics is, uh, seven to 10 days every year. I, I, I take a trip to some either military battlefield, uh, and I'm not uh, immune to, to Western history. Uh, we went out to little bighorn out in Montana a couple of years ago, a buddy of mine and, and I have the bug and it's just a great escape uh, for me. I come back, uh, the batteries are re-energized, recharged and, uh, uh, we get back to business here in uh, the great state of Iowa. Does having that
0: curiosity and interest in the past help as a sportscaster, especially when it comes to you know, putting into perspective what is going on on the field at a, or the court at a given time?
1: No question. Uh, I think that's a great point. Uh, I've been in banking for 30 years. I've been in broadcasting for 14 years. And I get asked a lot, uh, you know, how can you be a part-time banker and a part-time broadcaster? Well, I I tie the two together uh, as a treasurer because uh, in banking, I mean, who who or what doesn't revolve around money uh, every day, whether it's the stock market, whether it's going to the ATM machine, uh, you need money to purchase goods and services and in banking. Uh, I've, uh, what it would also helped me too, I was uh, two years as a news anchor, a television news anchor, so I got a real affinity for uh, what's going on around the world. You have to know what's going on uh, overseas in Europe, uh, in the United States, whether it's Donald Trump's first 100 days in office or all the, the calamity and turmoil that's going on politically in Washington right now. Uh, why is the stock market over 21,000 when I can remember the day when it hit 10,000 uh, everybody uh, thought that was the end of the world, that it couldn't get any better than that. And here the Dow is at over 20,000, even though it's had a, a rough couple days. Uh, I've always felt that's made me a better broadcaster because uh, you, you're not going to win the game every Saturday or every Wednesday night uh, in the dead of winter when you're playing basketball. There are days where your team's not going to have its best uh, performance and you're going to get thumped or you're going to you're going to get defeat uh, defeated hopefully not too many in succession so it's good to have a handle on world events and and maybe in, in a humorous vein bring some of that up and talk about that and make it more of a uh, 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 a common interest uh, broadcast i've always found that has helped me but i also feel that if you know what's going on around you it, it helps you in your everyday job and, and i can say that both about banking and broadcasting
0: so, how did you get into broadcasting from banking?
1: It, it, not, nothing uh, unique or, or, or interesting, for that matter. I was in high school, and you know, I grew up in small town Iowa. I grew up in a town of twelve hundred people, and, and is so typical with a farming community like Cascade. Is oftentimes. Uh, you, you know, you jump on board with the line of succession to the family business or you want to run the farm or you want to stay in your community, marry your girlfriend that you've been dating forever and and raise a family and, and that kind of thing. And I, and I was wholly prepared to do that. I uh, really wasn't fired up about going to college uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s and. Sat down my senior year with my guidance counselor. I, I had gone to a, a small Catholic, uh, small town Catholic high school. Guidance counselor happened to be a priest, who was a very good orator, very good uh, giver of sermons, and a very articulate guy, and an, an outstanding faculty member. And he said, "What do you want to do beyond high school?" I said, "You know, Father, I really don't know." And and for whatever reason uh, that. That piqued his interest. He said, well, tell me about your habits and your hobbies. What do you love to do? I said, well, I love to play sports. And at the time, I was a pretty good basketball player, loved playing baseball, uh, but knew I wasn't good enough to uh, to go to a Division One school or Division Two, for that matter. Could have probably played at Division Three. And I said, beyond that, I loved listening to sports, primarily at that time baseball, on the radio, because uh, my parents had given me a a little spin dial RCA transistor radio. I think I was in uh, second or third grade, and I found it fascinating. You can lay in bed at night and flip that dial around, uh, primarily a.m., of course, and I could pick up baseball games in Detroit and Minneapolis and Jack Buck and St. Louis and uh, KDKA in and Pittsburgh and, and uh, all over the Midwest and, and of course the big 50,000-watt Giants, you could pick up games all over the country and, and that just fascinated me and I said, you know, that play-by-play is kind of something I'm passionate about. I love listening to really good radio announcers and at that point Father Bruggeman said, well, have you ever thought about broadcasting school? And frankly, I had not and we pulled some books out of his desk and we looked at different schools and uh, I ended up at Brown Institute uh, in Minneapolis because they had a great uh, a cooperative uh, working agreement with the University of Minnesota, which has one of the outstanding journalism schools in the country. And that's where I ended up. And uh, from there, I fanned out and uh, you know paid my dues at small-town radio stations from uh, Jacksonville, Illinois, to uh, Springfield, to uh, Dubuque, uh, ultimately... Uh, uh, got my break in Chicago originally doing Northwestern, worked for the Bears for 10 years, and then now, uh, hard to believe, but 20 years ago, Iowa called and and uh, asked if I would uh, be interested in, in uh, its play-by-play opening. Uh, I think I was one of about 90 uh, that applied for that position. And as things turned out, I was fortunate enough to get that job. And so that, uh, But in the meantime, I, I did thousands uh, of high school football and basketball, softball, baseball games, uh, covered uh, minor league hockey, did five years of uh, minor league uh, baseball play-by-play, which uh, really I, I really enjoyed. Uh, I love doing baseball because it allows you a time to be creative in between pitches to set the stage uh, continuously. It forces you to be able to communicate, for hours at a time with your listening audience and and that's helped me in my football and basketball broadcasting uh, to this day really.
0: So I want to get more into your path here in a little bit but before uh, we had this interview did some little bit of research read some articles on you and it seems like maybe you had a little bit of a challenging childhood where your father passed away when you were young you were the oldest of seven kids and had to really kind of work and help to contribute to the family how did that help you to grow into the person you are now?
1: Needless to say, uh, it forced me to grow up a little bit sooner than I had planned. Uh, you're right. Uh, we had seven kids in our family. Uh, mom, uh, My mom and dad ran a little uh, grocery store bar. I like to tell people it was a convenience store long before that term convenience store came to being. Uh, uh, in a town the size of uh, of, of Cascade, Iowa, which is 1,200 people at the time, I think it's around 2,000 people now, it basically catered to farmers and and to uh you know, you know your local uh, small business owners and of course people in the neighborhood who would walk in for their groceries and I would uh fill the coolers and you know stock the candy case and the shelves and so I learned at an early age uh I, I dare say 10 11 years old uh, to you know I was forced to talk to people when they came in the door and said hi and you wanted to be nice and respond back and say hi and Uh, I got to be a freshman in high school, and as you pointed out, uh, the oldest of seven, there were four boys, three girls uh, in my family, and I went downstairs to breakfast one morning, and we were getting ready to go to school. It was in uh, early April, as a matter of fact. And my sister went up to wake up my dad and uh, get him up and have him come. Because, you know, as you can imagine, we'd open up about 10 in the morning and close at 2 a.m. or whenever the bar hours uh, said you had to close. And so my dad put in a lot of long days, and she found him dead in bed uh, of an enlarged heart at the tender age of 36. And, you know, there's some heart history in the dolphin uh, background. Uh, and obviously, medically, this is 1966. So medically, treatment is much better today than it was then. But that said, it was uh, quite, quite a uh, an explosion of emotion, as you can imagine, with my mother now forced to raise, now having to raise seven kids by herself. Uh, and I get back to my love of baseball and, and basketball and, and, and others in high school. I mean, that is a great escape. In small towns, uh, you have you have your church and, and you have uh, your relatives and, and you have the local high school, which everything re- revolves around. So I was forced to give up uh, a couple sports. I, I continue to play basketball. And I went out and got a job. <clears throat> Excuse me, My uh, I have a brother who's a year younger than me and a sister who's a couple years younger than me, and and we all went out and got part-time jobs and and helped to... uh, It's not like that we were destitute. I don't want to paint a picture of uh, poverty here. But the other great component there... Was uh, people in a small town, whether it be neighbors or community organizations, would show up uh, unannounced at our doorstep with bags of groceries or with gift cards or gift certificates? I guess they were then. Uh, I learned early on what hand-me-downs were—second-hand uh, clothing and shoes—and uh, never forgotten that. And that's why I always try to give back to the community um, where uh, where this organization needs an MC or they need a check or something of that nature. Uh, it, it really uh, Taught me some valuable early lessons. Not that you want to use your, lose your dad when you're a, a freshman in high school. And of course, I'll always be uh, indebted to our mother, who passed away here this past August from uh, after a long battle with Alzheimer's. Uh, but she really, she really kept the family together, uh, taught us uh, uh, the values, and provided the backbone. Uh, ultimately, she had to sell the the business because she just couldn't run that by herself. And uh, but you know, the small town upbringing. Uh, I think uh, was really uh, uh, instrumental in helping us deal with tragedy at that time. And I I think it's made, uh, you know, we've since lost one brother uh, to a car accident. And so uh, there are three boys and three girls, and and we've all uh, learned those values from an early age.
0: All right, well, on to some happier talk. Uh, The the first break that you got to get into the sportscasting industry out of Brown, getting that foot in the door, how did that happen for you?
1: well, Brown institute had had a wonderful program called uh, Lifetime Placement, where they they would help you find a job. They had uh, really good connections all over the country because they had uh, brown brownies, as we call them, brown grads all over the United States. And you'd look at different areas, and I applied in uh, Louisiana North Dakota. I was just anxious to get out there and get that first job, and along came a little WJIL in Jacksonville, Illinois, which is 30 miles from uh, the state capital of Springfield, uh, with an offer, and it was a little bit of everything. It was uh, morning personality. I I dare say I probably recorded 60% of the commercials uh, of the production work, and then at night... Uh, they well, at least in the in the summertime, we were able to do uh, uh, high school uh, baseball and and softball. We did not have a nighttime signal to do football, but ultimately they got an FM station which took care of that issue. And I was there a couple years, and then uh, uh, was home visiting one weekend and noticed that uh, in Dubuque, which is about twenty five miles from Cascade. The longtime sportscaster there, Hall of Famer by the name of Red McAleese, was uh, semi-retiring. And What caught my uh, interest there, or, or piqued my interest, was that KDTH in Dubuque was one of, I don't know, half a dozen stations that broadcast all Iowa football games. And so I called the station manager, just picked the phone up. I said, hey, I told him who I was, where I grew up, long lifelong Iowa fan. I noticed that uh, Red is retiring or semi-retiring. Would the position include uh, play-by-play of Hawkeye football and, at the time, Hawkeye basketball? And he said, yeah, absolutely. So I sent him a tape. Of course, all I could send him was high school play-by-play. He called me a week later and hired me on the phone. So something obviously uh, tweaked his uh, or piqued his interest in me. Uh, And that was uh, we we didn't even have a face to face interview. So I said, "Geez, don't you want to sit down and look at me and talk to me?" No. He said, "I've done my research on you, and and, uh, I'd like you to start in two weeks." Well, that was kind of a punch in the nose uh, in terms of reality, and so I I gave my two weeks. And I was really enjoying uh, uh, Jacksonville, uh, which is not only the home of the Ferris wheel, it was invented there, but at the time, and it is the hometown of Ken Norton, the great heavyweight boxing champion. And I had just concluded a a live interview with Ken uh, on the air, oh, I don't know, two days prior to that. He was getting ready to face Muhammad Ali again. And Jacksonville was centrally located in uh, west-central Illinois, close to Springfield, close to uh, St. Louis. Uh, We carried the Cardinals and the Blues and would go down to games there and and really, really enjoyed my time there. But I knew career-wise it was the best move for me. Came to Dubuque. Uh, And in, uh, uh, oh, I dare say uh, the space of 25 years uh, covered all three high schools. Uh, There are three colleges in Dubuque and Loris and the University of Dubuque and Clark. And and it really, uh, they had a minor league baseball program at the time. They were the uh, Class A franchise of the Houston Astros, which afforded me five years of of, uh, play-by-play in the Midwest League. Uh, Dubuque was a great stop for me. It really, really formed the personality. Uh, r- really taught me the values of, of what it, what it means to pay your dues, uh, and be. And, and if you want to be a good broadcaster and you want to continue to climb up the ladder, which sometimes doesn't go as fast as you'd like, uh, then this, this was a, a catch-all job for me. Uh, I continued to do a, you know, host a, an on-air show. I would do uh, a lot of the production work, a lot of the commercial records did some news on the weekends, uh, and obviously did a lot of sports and really formed, uh, I feel, who I am today.
0: So then after that, what was your first
1: break into the D1 ranks?
0: If I read this correctly, it was at
1: Northwestern? Yeah, it was at Northwestern. And uh, here's a classic example of, uh, and I tell classes and young people this all the time, make as many friends as you can because you just never know uh, as those friendships grow, and, and some dissipate because people move out of town, uh, they go elsewhere across the country. But make as many friends as you can and burn as few bridges as you possibly can. Uh, it's nothing more than being nice to people who will remember you. And uh, when when I was at a uh, the television station, I was at the radio station in Dubuque for about seven years they had a small ABC television station that I went to as sports director, and I would go out and cover everything. I was smart enough to figure out that You know, we weren't going to compete with the Cedar Rapids and the Waterloos, the Quad Cities and the Des Moines television stations. But where we could get a foothold is in local sports, local coverage. So I would go to every cross-country meet that I could. I'd go to every uh, softball game, high school football, basketball game that I could. Got to know a lot of the athletes, got to know a lot of the parents. And I'm uh, in a driving rainstorm or a hard rain one day at uh, the local golf course covering – Uh, the Iowa Conference cross-country mate. And there's this uh, young lad named Tom Bay, B-O-E-H, is how you spell his last name. He's from Chicago. He was a high school All-American cross-country runner at Glen Ellen High School in Chicago. And he's running for Loras College. And he was so taken uh, at the finish line that there was a guy with a TV camera there. And he came over and asked me who I was and where I was from. I said, well, I'm from right here in Dubuque, son. And uh, we, we just struck up a friendship. I'd see him at a few meets, and, and uh, he uh, ultimately got his degree in sports administration from Lawrence College, went to the University of Illinois, got his master's and his Ph.D. And then, was uh, last I had heard, he was out on the East Coast as an assistant athletic director. And I'm sitting here at the bank one day, and uh, my office phone rings, and I pick it up. And I hadn't talked to Tom in probably three, four, five years. He said, Hey, uh, guess what? I'm back in my hometown of Chicago. I go, well, good for you. What are you doing? He said, well, I'm, I'm now the uh, associate athletic director in charge of external affairs at Northwestern university. I go, well, what's that mean? External affairs. He said, I'm in charge now of radio and TV contracts and I need a play by play announcer. And that's frankly uh, how I got the Northwestern job for uh, what would be six years. And, and, uh, I, I, I thought, you know what, this is a great opportunity for me because I had not done Big Ten basketball or football since the early uh, early to mid-70s. Now, this is 1989, by the way. Uh, with um, with the Dubuque station before I went to TV for 10 years. And so I thought, you know, uh, I'm enjoying banking. I was a full-time banker at the time, still doing some local high school stuff on the side. But I thought if I, if I really, uh, at age uh, whatever it was, 36 or 37, really want to pursue my dream job, I think this is a doorway I need to run through. And uh, I made the drive from eastern Iowa into Chicago every time Northwestern played basketball for six years, home and away and uh, struck up great relationships with uh, many guys who are at the Big Ten Network now or at other networks. Sean Morris would be the best example I could give you. He and I did Northwestern basketball for a number of years because he played at Northwestern. And uh, so you know, when you when I hear this big break thing, uh, it's it's like something magical or miraculous happened with people. And I dare say if you asked uh, Dick Enberg to Greg Gumbel to, uh, to Joe Buck, They would have a similar story. Obviously, Joe Buck had an advantage in in that he had a famous dad who no doubt pulled some strings, and I'm okay with that. You still have to be good to perform your job. But many of us, uh, like me, uh, I dare say would tell you that, uh, hey, I just, you know, a buddy of mine, uh, we befriended each other uh, for years, and years later he called back and he said, hey, I'd like to hire you. And that's how it happens for a lot of people. And and, and I tell youngsters, it doesn't happen overnight, but just uh, keep doing what you do best. And eventually somebody's going to notice you.
0: How long of a drive was it from Eastern Iowa to Chicago for every single game?
1: Well, I live on the river on the Mississippi River in Eastern Iowa, so I, I can see Illinois from my, my window right now at my office. So and, and, and bear in mind that um, obviously the bank had to okay this because there's many Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday uh, night uh, big Ten basketball games, and they were okay with it. Most of the games are on the weekends, obviously, at that time. Uh, but I also used my vacation time uh, to cover to cover the difference. But I I would leave if if there's a home game in Evanston at uh, seven o'clock on a on a on a a Wednesday night. I I would leave here about uh, leave Dubuque about one one thirty in the afternoon. It's about a three hour drive. Get there at five. Plenty of time to do my pregame interviews, uh, and, and people uh, scratch their head at that. Uh, I'm about ninety minutes from Iowa City. I always enjoy that drive in the in the vehicle by myself because it allows me to clear my head to put put a question line together for the coaches to think about. It's not that I haven't already studied up on the opponent, but to uh, again review in my head the strengths of an Indiana or a Wisconsin or a Minnesota uh, tonight's opponent. Uh, who the key players are. And and I find it a very soothing uh, drive, whether it was Northwestern at the time or Iowa now.
0: Did you ever have any close calls with Chicago traffic getting stuck on the way to a game? Oh, many, many
1: times, Uh, particularly during the week. Obviously uh, Friday afternoon is, is brutal. If, if if it's a Saturday afternoon game, I would uh, drive in early Saturday morning. But if it's a road trip, And a Saturday, uh, you'd leave on Friday. If we're flying out to uh, Penn State, we'd leave Friday afternoon, maybe around 3 o'clock. So I would leave by, I don't know, 9 a.m. on Friday morning. That would be one of my vacation days. And uh, they flew out of Midway. They thankfully did not fly out of O'Hare. Midway is a big airport, but much smaller than O'Hare. You know, ultimately, Logan, you, you, you learn the back roads. You learn, you know, not everything is the tollway or the interstate where all the traffic is. So I, I I don't first off I don't mind driving uh, I enjoy driving for the reasons I just mentioned, uh, but I I figured out the back door uh, roadways to uh, here and there, and it really wasn't that big of an issue. So from there, what was your
0: break getting to the Hawkeyes where you are now?
1: Well, I was broadcasting Northwestern, broadcasted Northwestern from ninety to ninety six, and, and during that period, uh, if you go back a year to uh, from nineteen ninety to eighty nine it it uh, it also happened that a good friend of mine uh, who uh, went to the University of Iowa where I first met him by the name of Brian Harlan was the uh, marketing director vice president marketing director for the Chicago Bears Uh, His dad, Bob Harlan, is the Hall of Fame executive of the Green Bay Packers and orchestrated the restructure of Lambeau Field. So it's it's that Harlan family. Kevin Harlan, I know you know who Kevin Harlan is. That would be uh, the broadcaster. Uh, NBA college, CBS football, what have you, is the older brother of of, uh, Brian Harlan. So Brian called and said, hey, uh, we're starting this new thing in the National Football League where we need... uh, a sideline network television coordinator to help speed up games on Sunday. In other words, I would be doing the timing of the of the breaks, not the officials, not the networks, not the players. And uh, I would do that for 10 years, 89 to 99. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing both at the same time and really enjoying that. And fast forward then to 1996. And, of course, i had been reading in the paper off and on over the years that the University of Iowa was the last great bastion of uh, of non-exclusive network radio. And that when, when were the Hawkeyes going to be uh, the one to take the fall? When were they going to make the plunge and not keep leaving uh, all of that money on the table? Because you had networks like Learfield, like ING, like uh, Westwood One that were beating paths to Iowa's door, wanting to be the exclusive rights holder for college football and basketball at the university. And and Iowa kept holding off and holding off and holding off uh, because of their legendary uh, individual play-by-play men like Jim Zabel uh, out of Des Moines and Bob Brooks and... Ron Gonder out of uh, Cedar Rapids, and Gene Clawson out of uh, Iowa City, and others. As I mentioned earlier, there were half a dozen stations that did every Iowa game, home and away, football and basketball. And Bump Elliott, the Hall of Fame athletic director at the time, was never going to be the one to go to these guys and say, hey, look, I'm sorry, we're going to have to put you out to pasture, because we have to do an exclusive rights deal. And, and I get that. And, and, and to put that in perspective, Logan, at the time, Iowa was probably – uh collectively, cumulatively uh, receiving three to four hundred thousand dollars a year in radio uh, rights fees from all these radio stations. Uh, uh, Learfield, who ultimately got the bid out of Jefferson City, Missouri, the first year we started that deal in 1997, Learfield paid the University of Iowa 1.2 million. So you can see, how long can you uh, keep walking away from an $800,000 stipend? And Bob Bowlesby, uh, to his credit, who succeeded uh, Bob Elliott in 1990, just assumed that uh, these legendary Hall of Fame broadcasters would ultimately retire. Well, guess what? They were enjoying life too much. <laughs> they weren't going to retire. So Iowa finally made the announcement in '96 that they were going to go exclusive the following year. And of course, uh, an interesting side note is I'm kind of chuckling and giggling uh, at reading all these stories about that because I, I, I know all these guys personally and socially and knew that a Jim Zobel, a Ron Gonder, a Bob Brooks, a Frosty Mitchell, they would never walk away of their own volition, that they would have to be shown the door. And so therefore, <clears throat> I had never applied for the Iowa job because I just assumed the politics being what it is, they were going to give the position to uh, one over the other two. Well, unbeknownst to me, Iowa decided that now they didn't, they couldn't play favorites. They had to, they had to hire a new play-by-play broadcaster. They would keep Ed Podolak, and they would keep Bobby Hansen as analysts. And why not? Uh, they're two of the best. But they would go out and search for a uh, a new uh, play-by-play man. And uh, when that news hit hit the newspapers in the state, as you can imagine, it was uh, of earthquake proportions. Uh, everybody was upset that their favorite play-by-play announcer, uh, did not get the job. So I'm thinking to myself, uh, you know, I'm enjoying doing Northwestern and, and uh, the Bear job. I'm thinking to myself, boy, whoever gets that job is, is going to be absolutely vilified. They're going to be grilled at the stake. They're going to be ripped to shreds because they are replacing not one, not two, not three, but a half a dozen broadcasting legends who had been doing Iowa football and basketball for probably on average 30 years each. And so I thought, you know, I'm not going to get in the middle of that. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. So again, I'm sitting at my desk one day and I get a phone call from one of the committee members. This is probably in the spring of 97. uh, And uh, I won't mention his name, but he was an associate athletic director at Iowa who had remembered me. Again, this goes back to Don't Burn Any Bridges. He had remembered me from the 70s. We became good friends and had a few beers together and he was still there. And he said, hey... uh, our committee's just wondering why you you have never applied uh, why you haven't applied for the University of Iowa play by play position and at the time I'm reading names like Wayne Laravy and Kevin Harlan and uh you know all these wonderful broadcasters who who were rumored to be the next voice and I'm thinking you know i'm 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 not going to play that political game and I told uh, the gentleman i said look uh i i i i'm not i'm forty five years old." Uh, that window, I assumed, is closed for me, and I'm happy doing a Big Ten school. I'm happy doing the Chicago Bear gig. I had uh, also done a couple of uh, Bear exhibition play-by-plays on television uh, for a couple years. And so I was perfectly uh, perfectly content with what I was doing. And this gentleman said, uh, and I'll never forget his line, he goes, uh, No, we think you ought to apply. That's the old wink-wink, we think you ought to apply. <laughs> and I got the message real quick and of course the Iowa job was always my quote-unquote dream job so I assured him that I would uh, uh, get a tape to him in the mail the next day and we would go from there and uh, probably three weeks later I got a call from uh, the Learfield sports side the new rights holder a guy named Roger Gardner who's now the the head of the entire company he was the head of the sports division at the time and I, I I went to Iowa City uh, six-person committee, including Bob Bowlesby, the athletic director at the time at Iowa, is now the Big Twelve commissioner. Roger Gardner and Greg Brown, who is now the head of the sports division at Learfield, and for two and a half hours, I sat there and we talked. We talked sports broadcasting. We talked who my heroes were growing up. I answered a lot of the many uh, a lot of the same questions you've asked me uh, to this point. And uh, we got done and and shook hands, and they said, well, you know what, we'll get back to you. You know, the old proverbial, we'll get back to you. So uh, a week goes by. Well, I said, when do you want to hire this, uh, make this announcement? Well, in the next couple weeks. Okay, fine. So I go home and I continue doing my job, of course, keeping it very quiet and uh, nothing, no phone call. First week, second week, three weeks in, no phone call. So I told my wife, I said, well, you know what, it was a good experience. Uh, I'm glad I got to at least interview for the position. Uh, but we'll, uh, you know, we'll we'll be frustrated and, and upset that we didn't get it, but we'll move on. Two nights later, uh, I get a phone call about seven o'clock at night from Roger Gardner. And I thought, well, I'm thinking to myself, uh, it's nice of him to call me and, and, and at least say, hey, thanks, but no thanks. And his words to me were, well, uh, Gary, I don't know how to put this other than we'd like you to be the next voice of the Iowa Hawkeyes. And, uh, you know, stunned for about 10 seconds and gathered my thoughts. I go, well, I accept. (laughs) That's about all I could think of to say. And uh, two days later, we had a press conference, and that was in 1997. And we started uh, started that fall. and, And what's unique about that whole situation, at least in my view, is that Uh, Naturally, I'm a nervous wreck on on opening day 1997 as Iowa versus Northern Iowa uh, in football at Kinnick Stadium, 71,000 people there. And On the first play from scrimmage, Tavian Banks goes off left guard and sprints 66 yards for a touchdown. First play of my broadcasting career at the University of Iowa is a 65-yard sprint to the end zone. That's how my career at Iowa got started, and uh, we've had a lot of highlights, a lot of down moments, but many more good ones and bad ones since.
0: Did you end up with any of that resentment or vilification that you thought you were worried about uh and why you didn't initially apply for that mm-hmm. job, or did uh, your friends who had been in that position before understand
1: yeah, and you know just to clarify, I was never worried about the vilification thing or being criticized i mean that goes that goes with the territory with a job like this, even if it hadn't been replacing several legends. Uh, you're not going to please everybody. That's one thing I had learned a long time before the Iowa job came along is that you're not you're not everybody's cup of tea, whether it's your style. Uh, obviously, I one thing I make sure is I prepare. Uh, I know my facts, I know what's going on in the game. I may not be able to broadcast it uh, succinctly enough for for everybody, but but I, I can deal with criticism. I have uh, loan customers ripping my head off all the time here at the bank. So that was never the, the reason. I, I, I it was more political than anything. Knowing that all these guys that, are, that were wearing Hall of Fame credentials, uh, that I, I just I, I just I, I I figured that one over the other over the third was going to get the job, and that's why I, I I was very comfortable. I didn't want Northwestern or the Bears thinking that I was going behind their back applying for other jobs when I truly enjoyed what I was doing. Uh, but, uh, no, the, the uh, vilification, the criticism, uh, uh, you know, the verbal slam started right away. Uh, this was, I mean, three, four months before I ever did a game. And uh, I remember the one headline uh, letter to the editor, you know, who's this guy from Dubuque? Who's this banker from Dubuque think he is that he can replace a Jim Zobel, a Bob Brooks, or a Ron Gonder? You know, you bite your tongue and you bite through your lower lip. And uh, for the people in eastern Iowa that had heard me, on the air they understood that i that i would be just fine in time but you got to have a, a pretty good uh, leather skin uh, out of the gate and and i did i just kind of turned a blind eye to the uh, to the criticism and i i dare say for the first year or two uh more often than not it, it was not pleasant you know that you know, this guy won't last uh let's bring jim sobel back let's bring ron gonder back you know and i i get the allegiance uh, to these, uh, to these other wonderful broadcasters. I mean, I, uh, for most of them, I grew up listening to them as well, and and know how passionate, uh, and how down home humor, and and how country they are, and that's the unique thing about being the voice of the Hawkeyes. Is you're in a you're in an ag state, you're in a farm controlled state. You got a lot of, a lot of people who don't watch TV on game day. They're out in their fields. They're out in the shopping centers, they're washing their cars, they're mulling their lawns, they have got their headsets on, that the, the radio is still their passion. You know, not as much today as it used to be with social media and and television game every game on the air, uh, every game on television. But it is still a, I can tell you, a radio state. And so I, I, I understood and we had a lot of discussions with the people at Iowa about this that uh, don't don't worry about the outside noise, you just do your job. The other component there was I had already known Podolak and Bobby Hanson for a long time, and they both uh, called when the news was announced and said, hey, uh, we've got your back, don't worry about uh, criticism, Uh, we're there to protect you, we know you'll do a great job. And and so I I went in without question uh, having an advantage uh, over – you know, other broadcasters that had applied for the positions. As a matter of fact, they only interviewed two of us in the end, two out of the 93 that I mentioned earlier. I think they uh, told me they paired the list from pretenders to contenders down to about 63 people. And they only interviewed two of us myself and a guy by the name of Jim Rose, who's a quality broadcaster, uh, who was doing the University of Nebraska at the time. And I think Jim is still in Omaha and Lincoln doing uh, some Husker uh, athletics.
0: That's definitely interesting as far as that goes, but I want to get more into Iowa as a radio state just because I, I have had the pleasure to live in Iowa for several years. I don't right now, but I grew up just across the river in on the Eastern side of Nebraska. And I know a lot about the culture and what they have and the way that they live there. And I guess that's one of the few places where it would almost be more fun to be the radio broadcaster than the TV broadcaster.
1: I wouldn't disagree with that, um, and I think it goes back to uh, to the beginning. You know, you had all these radio stations back in the '40s and '50s uh, that that wanted to cover the University of Iowa, and, and of course, other than Des Moines, the population center is. Des Moines on east, you know Cedar Rapids, Waterloo, Dubuque, the Quad Cities, Burlington, most of the major uh, population centers uh, re- reside uh, in the eastern half of the state, and so Iowa was a big deal. Uh, people are at work, they got their radios on, and that still happens today. But you know, in the 40s and 50s, and uh, it, it it was all radio. And then uh, Forrest Eveshevsky uh, hit town in the 1950s, and and Iowa wins three Big Ten championships. They won a couple Rose Bowls. They won a couple national championships, mythical national championships, and they really got it going. And then uh, Evie uh, heads off to be A.D. and Jerry Burns, uh, the legendary coach, becomes head coach, and uh, it didn't work out. And for the next 19, 19 years, from like 1962 or 3 to, to 79 or 80, uh, Iowa did not have a, a winning season. They had a couple 500 seasons, but nothing over 500. And then Hayden Fry changed everything in 1979 when he arrived with that uh, wide open, still going to run the football, but more much more of a wide open offense. Kirk Ferentz succeeded Hayden of course and the rest is history and uh but it it is a great radio state and i think it goes back to uh you know Niall Kinnick and just beyond when uh, when it was one radio station i mean you you hear the legend and lore of Ronald Reagan uh president Reagan worked at WHO in Des Moines and WOC in Davenport and uh, was one of the original broadcasters of Iowa football and i think it, the the legend the myth the uh, the legitimate has drawn uh, 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 since that time and and, uh, we have some great radio stations in Iowa most notably WHO which is a 50,000 watt clear channel station gets into 42 states at night and and I think that's part of the appeal part of the draw of that uh, Herky the Hawk or Tiger Hawk logo as it is today not only around Iowa and the Midwest but nationally I think radio's had a lot to do with that
0: and I want to go back I want to backtrack just a little bit Uh, where you were talking about dealing with criticism a little bit. This is topical right now because uh, by the time this is released, I'll have published a blog post based on a reader question that talked about whether, whether they should look at fan forums to see what the public comments are about their broadcast and how to deal with the negative ones. Do you look at any of the fan feedback? Do you care about it? Do you recommend it?
1: Well, certainly you care about uh, the fan feedback and, and, uh, you know, today with uh, Twitter and Facebook and and you have to be aware of what's being said and what's going on around you, but you can't let it affect your day-to-day approach to to how you do things. Certainly you're always open to uh, constructive criticism. Uh, You're always open to, uh, you know, legitimate uh, change. Uh, by committee and, and i have a great support system as you can imagine where uh, we've already had a couple meetings since the end of basketball uh, and football football is a much bigger uh, game day uh, setup and broadcast than basketball is obviously because it's a longer broadcast or are more moving parts but technically uh, we, we're we're always reviewing uh, what we're doing and how we can become better uh, and, and even at that you're you're going to uh, you're going to get criticism and you and frankly you're you're going to screw up you're going to make mistakes i'm not here to say that i'm perfect and when you're doing a live broadcast uh, whether it's uh, you know michigan on a saturday night where it comes down to that last field goal at the end, or it's a, you know it's a five touchdown victory on a hot September Saturday afternoon, you still want to be a perfectionist. And uh, I, I don't. I used to go back and listen to every tape. I don't every game. I don't do that now. Uh, I know when I uh, walk out of the out of the booth on Saturday afternoon or or Saturday night in basketball whether or not I've done a good job. Uh, and if you're prepared, it usually takes care of itself. And and and, and the criticism is always going to be there. People, uh, for whatever reason, and it's not just broadcasting, but people love to jump on other people's mistakes. Uh, I don't get that. Uh, you know, they, they some people relish and watching other people or listening to people make mistakes. And and uh, while we're apologetic for it, we try not to make major mistakes. But uh, everybody makes mistakes every day of their life, and that's how you get better.
0: So you mentioned this earlier as well, that part of your position with the Hawkeyes is that you travel around with some of the coaches and some of the players to kind of fan banquets. I believe it's called the iClub. I actually, you probably don't remember this, but I very briefly met you and shook your hand, actually, at the Carroll Area iClub several years back. But being the MC for those events... I haven't talked to anybody who's done that. What do you like about it? And I guess, wow, what rewarding? what's rewarding about being that close to the fans?
1: Simply put, uh, I've always been a people person. Uh, I, I learned that in journalism school. Uh, one of my instructors, the great thing about Brown Institute and the University of Minnesota Journalism School is many of the classes then were taught by on-air personalities in the Twin Cities and of course that is as you know a major market doesn't get much better than that and I remember one instructor telling me, uh, you know, you look people in the eye and you're having a street, always look at it, always approach it as a street corner conversation. And that is you come around the corner of one building and here comes an old high school classmate that you had not seen in 25 years around the other side of the building. And you bump into each other and you immediately, your jaws is and You go, my goodness, Bill, where have you been? Logan, how are you doing? And you carry on a 10 or 15 minute conversation off the cuff, without notes, unrehearsed about uh, that 25 year gap, uh, that vacancy and how you filled it in. You have kids. uh, uh, You know, where do you work? What are you doing now? Are you still in broadcasting? Those kinds of things. Uh, Today, as you know, with uh, social media, uh, our younger generation, doesn't spend enough time looking people in the eye and having that street corner conversation. It still gets back to communication, uh, to being nice to people, but to, to talking to them face-to-face instead of uh, texting or on Facebook. And, 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 there, and that's all well and good. I'm not saying there's not room for that. But we've become so dependent on uh, on non-eye contact modes of communication. I think it's hurt our society. I think it, it, it has uh, limited our ability to communicate the right way, and that's what I would urge young people who are uh, thinking about getting into uh, communications or journalism or broadcasting uh, in particular, is uh, put that phone down, put that uh, laptop down uh, more often than not, and and, and get involved with uh, volunteer organizations, with charitable and civic organizations, because you're going to meet people who who are in a hiring position uh, from other companies. And, and that's how I've made my network of friends. And I know it's a long way around, uh, transitioning-wise, to, to the iClub banquet tour. But I've always been a people person from that, from that first day on in journalism class. I, I feel it's really important to meet people face-to-face, to shake their hands. And, you know, the iClub you mentioned Uh, in Carroll is one of the bigger ones we do because the further out from Iowa City you get the more passionate Iowa fans are particularly if they live within a stone's throw of Ames which Carroll and Boone and and Story City and some of those communities do but they're very passionate about the Hawks and the coaches and I and, and the assistant coaches are only too happy to go out and you know they my deal is this you you people you great fans uh, spend three and a half hours driving one way every Saturday to an Iowa football game or uh, every cold Wednesday night to Carver Hawkeye Arena, the least we can do is come out here in the spring and break bread with you and have a great time and hear the hear from the coaches and sign a few autographs and make some money for the local I Club. the people that are really the backbone of the very program that we broadcast for. And, and I know I speak on behalf of the coaches, whether it's Ferentz or Bluter or Brands or McCaffrey that uh, for half a dozen 10 times a spring it's a small price to pay
0: and correct me if my timeline is incorrect but after you got the Hawkeye position you know you were (laughs) tested a little bit you were runner-up to become the voice of the Chicago Bears it went to Gary Bender instead and then a couple years later they offered you an NFL play-by-play position but you turned it down what went into that decision and how difficult was it
1: yeah, that's that's a little bit. I'll straighten that story up. I, I think somebody told me they read that on Wikipedia or someplace, but that that is not how it happened. Um, but but you're close. Uh, the, the the offer to be the head or the head coach. The, the offer to be the. Uh, Play by play voice of the Chicago Bears uh, was never spoken face to face or never offered face to face. What happened was uh, I had been in the Iowa uh, job maybe two years, I think. Well, I'll tell you when it was. It was the year Wayne Larrabee announced he was leaving the Bears to go to become the voice of the Green Bay Packers. I was uh, doing Iowa for two or three years. I can't remember. It was the late 90s, 1998 or 1999. And, uh, 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 was asked to apply for the Bears' job, which I did. I I went in Chicago and uh, had a sit-down with uh, uh, the general manager. I believe it was WBBM uh, CBS in Chicago. It might have been WGN. But uh, in any event, uh, the young lady who was the general manager of the radio station and two other people were going to make this decision. So I was one of perhaps, I don't know, 10 to 15 folks that they interviewed face-to-face uh had a follow up uh, discussion and uh they simply said look uh, we really like what we hear out of you uh but we're going to need you if if you would if you would be the next voice of the bears we would need you to give up Iowa basketball and at that time Steve Alford had just arrived and uh, you just knew that coach Alford was going to do a a, a bang up job at Iowa and and win and hopefully uh, get us to some final fours and I that's where I hesitated that's where I pushed back and said no no I don't why do I have to give up Iowa basketball Wayne, Wayne Larravee does Cubs baseball he does Bulls basketball he does uh, Big 10 uh, Big 10 football on Saturday and then makes his way to Chicago or wherever the Bears are playing why all of a sudden uh, are you telling me that I have to give up Iowa basketball well, we just feel that, uh, you know, we need that kind of focus, and we want you to do the, uh, I think the coach was Dick Chiron, then want you to be here in Chicago to do the uh, Monday Night Dick Chiron call-in show. I said, look, I can hire a pilot if I have to to get me to Chicago to do that. Well, ultimately, I think what they were looking for was uh, afternoon drive time sports anchor as well as being the voice of the Chicago Bears. And quite frankly, uh, I did not want to anchor... Sports radio or TV—just uh, a rip and read uh, talk about you know what's going on in the city at that point. Uh, I strictly wanted to be play-by-play and host the coaches' shows, which I was fully capable of doing. And I emphasized, them, look, I made the drive in from Dubuque for six years doing Northwestern, working for the Bears. I know this routine. I can do it." Well, they insisted that I uh, forfeit uh, the, the play-by-play of Iowa basketball, and eh, you know, I wasn't—I wasn't, I wasn't going to do that. Iowa had given me a great opportunity. I, I was balancing my schedule uh, as best I could and get, and getting the job done, and I felt I could do that with the Bears. But, um, and, and, and there would be some crossover where, whereby I could get a fill-in to do whatever Iowa uh, November Iowa basketball game that I needed covered. But for the most part, for Big Ten basketball and Chicago Bear football, it was not going to overlap because, as you know, Big Ten basketball is in January, February, and March – and uh, if the Bears were in the playoffs, great. If they weren't, the football season was already over. So I thought it was uh, a weak argument. And uh, ultimately, I, I, uh, they they asked to keep the door open, which I said, fine. Uh, but I also knew that when when people tell you they're going to keep the door open, you're probably not going to hear from them again. And it was probably a month or two later that Gary Bender got the job. And and here's the irony of all this. Uh, Gary Bender lives in Phoenix. He has a home in Colorado. And he absolutely flat-out refused not to move to Chicago. But he also said he wasn't doing the call-in show. <laughs> and all he would do would fly in on Saturday. He traded his four complimentary season tickets, I'm told, to uh, one of the local hotels in Chicago for an overnight stay and flew back to Colorado, or, excuse me, to uh, Phoenix uh, on Monday or Sunday night. And so ultimately Hub Arkish uh, did the call-in shows. And uh, I always I was kind of shook my head in retrospect there that uh, uh, Gary Bender wasn't exactly what they were looking for either, but, uh, you know, they were kind of co- uh, caught in a pinch at that point, and, and I think Gary lasted, what, one or two years, and then ultimately, uh, they gave the position to Jeff Joniak, who had already been there anchoring WBBM afternoon sports, which he still does, to my knowledge, and, uh, and Jeff had never done a play-by-play, uh, uh, at least at that level in his life. And and he has really made himself into a terrific broadcaster. Uh you know, he, he he's just done a, a terrific job. And so ultimately they got what they wanted and everybody's happy.
0: <clears throat> what are some of your broadcast horror stories where you ended up in a position where something just went horribly wrong, your your position to see the game was really unusual. It's a broad question, but I enjoy hearing some of the war stories, so to speak, from from your time probably covering small Iowa high school football and basketball do you have any good ones
1: <laughs> I well I have plenty of them I don't know that I don't know that I would label them horror stories because you know the older you get uh, the more you're dialed in with reality and and, and you remember the days uh, you, you, I'm a lot older than you are, but remember the days when your career first started where the, just the littlest thing went wrong. you know the phone line went dead or the computer crashed. You would think it was the end of the world. and uh, yeah, I, I had those moments uh, both locally and and uh, not so much at Iowa or or with Northwestern, but I can remember one night um, uh, driving to a, a high school football playoff game the broadcast and uh we get and it's a it's a rainy night <clears throat> and we get to the uh the stadium uh, uh the high school football field and as you know the, the most of them are smaller press boxes it's it's a chilly november night and my my broadcast partner and i climb up the ladder into the booth and it's jam-packed i'm thinking boy this this is not good well, not only did they not have a spot reserved for us, uh, they they uh, you know somewhere the disconnect occurred and the the school didn't get the notice that we were coming, and therefore we uh, there was no phone line. Now we're 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 50 miles from from home from the radio station, and so a Marty unit is not going to do it. And so what do we do now? And you know it's an hour and a half before game time, and cell phones. Uh, I think at that at that point where the old the old bag phones were the things weighed more than you do and uh, we walked back to our uh, vehicle in the parking lot uh, and we we at least were able to weasel a press parking pass on them so we were able to drive right up to uh, you know the cyclone fence or the gate uh, to where we could pretty much see the entire field you know the stands were uh, uh, we're limiting our view of of the right side of one end zone and i said to my uh, buddy jack i go well jack uh, thank goodness it's uh, we, we brought your pickup truck because here's what we're going to do. We're going to dial the radio station. They're going to get us on the air with this bag phone. And we're going to stand on top of the uh, uh, the uh, hood of the pickup truck and broadcast this game. And he looked at me like, what? And uh, again, keep in mind, it's a, ste- a steady November drizzle. Uh, and thankfully, we did bring an umbrella with us to protect the equipment. So uh, we, uh, <clears throat> every I don't know, third or fourth commercial break, if the signal wasn't the best, uh, we we would hang up, dial back in, and uh, somehow we got through that game. Uh, I would do a quarter, he would do a quarter, because typically he would do a half, I would do a half, but your arm was aching pretty good by holding the phone up for an entire 50 or 12-minute quarter, whatever it was, and so uh, every other quarter we would switch off. And the other would hold the umbrella, <laughs> and we really didn't worry about statistics. I paid a kid—I uh, can't remember what it was—ten bucks for the evening to run back and forth from the press box at the end of each quarter and bring us a, 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 a jimmied stat sheet. And uh, you know, uh, we because we, we, you couldn't keep stats in the rain, obviously, as you know, uh, the paper wouldn't hold up. Uh, so we were able to get through it. And, you know, I learned, uh, not only that night, but there were other nights. You learn valuable lessons like that, that it's not the end of the world. Uh, the people at home, you know, we didn't have to tell them what was going on. What was me? We're really in a bad spot. You don't do that. People don't want to hear about your problems. They want to hear about the game. And we knew we had grandma and grandma of, of a lot of the players, mom and dad, back, back in Dubuque listening. <clears throat> and uh, it came off fine. And so yeah, that would be about as close to a horror story. Uh, there have been times uh, back in the early days of doing Iowa where you know five, six radio stations show up at Penn State, and 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 of course they're not prepared. Uh, all these other stations do have exclusive network rights holders, so they only need one radio booth for the home for the home uh, school. But uh, now now they're looking for four or five spaces for visiting radio. And and I've done a few games on top of press boxes. I did a game at the L.A. Coliseum on a Saturday night uh, in uh, L.A. uh, when Iowa back in the 70s when they were playing home-and-home with USC and and one year and, and UCLA the next. And I can remember watching Anthony Davis and Pat Hayden from Southern Cal go up and down the field. All night long in Iowa from a uh, canvas lean to broadcast perch on top of the LA Coliseum one Saturday night. I think the score ended up 56 to 7 USC. They had great teams then. And about midway through the third quarter, those uh, Santa Ana desert winds picked up off the ocean or swirled in off the ocean around. Uh, La and uh, jarred loose uh, one of these canvas flaps above our head, and all you heard was a popping for about a quarter and a half till we could get in uh, done with the game, and so you have some structural deficiencies like that that uh, could unnerve you, but uh, you know you put it all in perspective, and at the end of the day, uh, you got on the air, you broadcast the game, win or lose and uh, now you just kind of make fun out of it and uh, that's one of your one of your memories maybe not your happiest memory but uh, one of them
0: i've always found i like to look back at them and laugh now just at that time they weren't so happy memories but um what do you do to this day to become a better broadcaster
1: i think you can uh, improve uh, every performance uh, i tell young broadcasters young wannabes that uh, look uh, Listen to your broadcast. Uh, don't don't overword it. Uh, you know I'm a big crowd noise guy. Uh, I get asked a lot about the end of the Michigan game last November when um, Keith Duncan kicked the field goals. The game ended and the Hawks shocked uh, undefeated number two Michigan. And all I said was it's good. And then ten seconds later I said it's good again. And and the rest was crowd noise. Uh, I'm just a big crowd noise guy, uh, and and it precludes uh, over talking. Uh, I think uh, radio still has that draw of crowd noise. Uh, you know, you're not seeing the action, but you can sense it. And, and we're still about creating a picture, painting a picture in that radio booth. And 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 if I could leave a a tip with uh, any youngster listening in or young person listening in, is uh, don't feel that. It, first off, don't work off a prepared script. You may have to in your pregame coverage just to, you know, keep your facts and figures straight as you preview what's ahead. But once that game starts, don't don't work off a, a prepared script, uh, you know, prepared lines or, or words. Let it happen. I mean, you've got a good education. You're there for a reason. You got hired because they think you can do the job. Be yourself because radio is still all about personality. And, uh, and then my other point would be, you know, ha- have that uh, that thick book of uh, background material on the opponent and, and on uh, the Hawks or whoever you're, whoever you're covering and, and use it sparingly, but use it when you need to, because not every day is going to be a good day. You know, there are days you're going to show up and, and get your tail kicked. And if that's the case, yeah, then you need to go to more stats and more personality profiles. And Logan uh, was a great high school track star, stuff like that. But um, most professional broadcasters will tell you to live in the moment, that they really don't get into stats. They really don't get into biographies. They get into what's going on in the field because that's why people are tuning in. Uh, and, and the other point, point there the, to dovetail off that is with social media, everybody's looking up every stat and every recruit and every little uh, tidbit about every individual. If they want to find out about C.J. Beathard, they're going to know about it long before I bring it up on the air. And I think that's a great thing to, to, to talk about in these days of broadcasting. Because I was around before social media doing ballgames, and obviously I'm around at, at at the zenith of social media, and it's only it's only going to get more chaotic uh, in the communication uh, world. But uh, j- therefore, more so than than what we used to be, we should be in the moment. Tell them what's going on right now and then fill in the blanks later.
0: So when Iowa has a bye week and you can turn on your radio and just tune in to uh, another ball game, who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to, both maybe nationally, regionally, and locally, that people outside of your area might not know?
1: Well, I'll start with the Big Ten. Uh, obviously, you develop great relationships, great friendships with uh, your fellow uh, play-by-play brethren uh, around the conference. And, and although I'm friends with all of them, uh, I'm, I'm very close with uh, Matt Lapay, who's the voice of the Wisconsin Badgers. Uh, Matt might very other other than Don Fisher at Indiana. Matt might very well be uh, the, uh, the the most senior play-by-play man, uh, football and basketball in the conference. Uh, Paul Keels, who is uh, a great guy and a very good friend, is the play-by-play voice of the Ohio State Buckeyes. And, and I get it. You know, it is Ohio State. Yeah, they're they're being favored for national championships every year. But you'd never know that with Paul Keels. He's such a down-to-earth guy. He's from Cincinnati. He used to do the Bearcats before he got his break with the Buckeyes. And, and uh, whenever whenever those guys come to town or I go to Madison or Columbus, we always get together the night before. Just down-to-earth guys uh, that are great people. Um, Don Fisher, obviously, the legendary voice of the Indiana Hoosiers, has been around for almost 40 years. Very professional. All these guys are great. Dave Enner, at WGN in Chicago, is, is a good friend. And that's why it's wonderful to see Northwestern having some success, uh, both in football, consistently in football, and uh, now in basketball because uh dave is very deserving he's called a lot of a lot of bad games a lot of bad years particularly in basketball and i've been there i, I know what he's talking about so it's good to see guys like that who have paid their dues have some success and you know, i'd be remiss if i left out uh, my buddy mike Grimm, who i know you know uh the voice of the gophers it's good to see the gophers having success i was real happy that Patino and his bunch bounced back and had a terrific year last year. Mike Grimm is a young guy that uh, I helped bring along, I'm proud to say, uh, back when his broadcasting career was, was uh, taking off. And now I, I think he told me he's in his 10th year. We'll be enjoying his 10th year as the voice of the Gophers in Minneapolis, which is a much different uh, uh, ball game, uh, a much different nugget than what Iowa is. Because, uh, you know, in Iowa, nice thing is we don't have to compete with uh, the Vikings and the twins and uh, being in a professional, uh, a predominantly professional sports town. Uh, Mike's trying to carve out his listenership uh, as best he can. And the, and the only way you do that is got to win. And uh, Gopher football, I know, is uh, really excited about P.J. Fleck as well. They should be. And obviously Richard petino uh, has done a phenomenal job. And the Gophers are going to be good in basketball, I would assume, for a long time. You can never predict injuries. But Mike, Mike is uh, he's been there on the ground floor. He's done a terrific job as the voice of the Gophers on uh, the Minnesota News Network. And, you know, those are some of the guys, uh, some of the names that uh, has become a much bigger Big Ten, uh, as you know, with now 14 schools. Uh, uh, Steve Jones at Penn State is a good friend and a, and a terrific broadcaster. Uh, but but all in all uh, these guys are not any different than me uh, you, you know you, you they worked long and hard both ends of the day for a lot of years to get to where they are and they're they're very deserving I, you know there's only as i tell people there's only 300 division 1 basketball schools in the country and there's only 120 or 130 division 1 football schools so these jobs are rare i mean they're they're far and few between and uh, every guy that I know, every broadcaster that I know in the league uh, that, and around the country that has one of these jobs is, is very, uh, uh, very appreciative. They know that they're not there forever; that they're there for a few years, and then you know they'll step aside, and somebody else will occupy that chair. Uh, as to the bigger picture of, of who I admired growing up, I mentioned. Uh, to this day a huge baseball fan and I I go back to my days as a youngster listening to Ernie Harwell in Detroit or Jack Buck in St. Louis or Minneapolis St. Paul. I love listening to to, uh, Merle Harmon and and, uh, Herb Carneal and Halsey Hall doing the uh, uh, Twins games and in that program's infancy back in the 60s you could get WCCO at night and WJR in Detroit, and obviously Jack Brickhouse in Chicago with the Cubs, and Bob Elson, a Hall of Famer, with the White Sox. And then nationally, I, you know, I've always been a big fan of uh, Dick Dick Enberg, uh, who was at NBC forever. Al Michaels, uh, I love Al Michaels' work on Monday Night Football, and I'm containing it to play-by-play people, uh, which I think is only appropriate. But and, and there's somebody I'm going to leave out, but. Uh, radio and TV, uh, you know, I think they, I think they're both, uh, they go hand in glove. Uh, a lot of guys have made that transition from radio to television over the years, like like an Al Michaels, like a Dick Enberg, and and have done so well with it. And you know, uh, today uh, Kevin Harlan is one of my favorites. Wayne Larry obviously is one of my favorites, uh, professionally speaking. So there, there's a lot of good broadcasters out there, but there's a lot of good broadcasters that we don't know that will be. Uh, taking our places in a few years and and that's the nature of the business and and i'm all for it Uh, they're not going to have to pry me out of the booth let's put it that way
0: once again we are chatting with gary dolphin he is the voice of the iowa hawkeyes for both football and men's basketball and gary if anyone wanted to reach out to you or had another question for you how would they do that
1: well i'll i'll uh i'll give you a couple avenues um uh, my my uh, email uh, address uh, probably the easiest way to get a hold of me is uh, g a r y gary dot p is in Philip dot dolphin. I'll repeat that gary dot p dot dolphin d o l p h i n at usbank dot com. That's all one word at usbank.com. Uh, and i always uh, i always return my emails it might not be the same day or the next day but uh, i get back to people uh, you know within 48 hours or at least respond to them uh if they'd like to give me a call uh it's uh, area code 563 589 2213 two two one three I, I i get calls or emails all the time from young broadcasters uh, say hey would you listen to a, an mp3 or listen to a a cd of, of my work and uh, i go yeah absolutely i make a hundred trips back and forth a year from iowa city uh, in my vehicle so i got a lot of time to listen to tapes and and compact disc and, and happy to uh, provide some insight and share some thoughts on uh, what it takes to be successful
0: once again, Gary, thanks for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. We really appreciate all the time that you gave us today.
1: Hey, Logan, good to be with you. And hope hope everybody has a wonderful spring and a safe summer. And uh, uh, we'll be talking at you in the fall.
0: This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to take a minute if you're listening on iTunes and give us a review and a rating. It really helps the podcast. Also, make sure to subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music or you can follow me on Twitter at radio underscore Logan, or follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash say the damn score. Thanks for tuning in, and next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.